Good morning, family. In the early 90s, Aerosmith wrote a song entitled Living on the Edge. So go ahead and sing along with me now if you know the words. I'm just messing. That's not going to happen here. Uh, but but here, here's the opening line to that song. There's something wrong with the world today. I don't know what it is. Something wrong with our eyes. We're seeing things in a different way, and God knows it ain't his. I mean, those are some prophetic lyrics from a long time ago. It's been 27 years since they wrote that song, but we feel the weight of those words, those opening lines now more than ever. There is something wrong with our world. I mean, that's undeniable for anybody living in the reality of the mess and the brokenness of our world. I mean, check that. It's not just something wrong. There are multiple obvious things wrong. Today, we begin a new series entitled Counterculture Kingdom, How Jesus' Gospel Changes Everything. Our series will be rooted in Matthew chapter 5, where we will learn where we will learn about the only perfect king, his perfectly just kingdom, and the primary values of his counterculture kingdom. If we will listen to this perfectly just king, he will tell us what is wrong with our world today. If we will listen to him, we will learn that what is wrong with our world is just as much in here, like in my heart, in my soul, and in your soul, your heart, as it is out there, right? We usually, we, we pit our enemies as out there and we, 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 we just assume that our heart and our soul, our soul are, are good, but uh, what is wrong is just as much in here as it is out there. If we will listen to him, we will not despair in our brokenness, rather, we will discover a growing faith, not in ourselves, not in our world, but in his resolve to redeem and restore the brokenness. We will repent if we listen and receive. We will repent of inaction, perhaps, hopefully. Uh, we all should be repenting of our rebellion. And that faith in Jesus will produce work in us. And so that faith will cause us to work for his fame and for the flourishing of people in our cities. In Matthew 5, we encounter what's known as the Beatitudes, which kick off Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes introduce us to the primary values of Jesus' counterculture kingdom. They're the primary values. Um, the Beatitudes serve as his inaugural address. It's Jesus saying, this is who I am, this is what I value as your king, and this is what the culture of my kingdom will be like. And then it's all unpacked in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you'll notice beatitude, as we read together, beatitude, the word, is not found in your Bible, like outside of your heading. So, why the name, you ask? Well, it comes from the Latin word beatus, which simply means blessed. And we're going to read the passage together now, Matthew chapter 5, and you'll see very quickly why this uh, short passage came to be known as the Beatitudes. Here it is, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. On my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Did you see how that paragraph began and ended? You caught this phrase two times. It said, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, biblical scholars would call that an inclusio, right? Wherever you see a word and then it's repeated again later or a phrase and it's repeated again later, they're serving as brackets to kind of put everything in the middle into one big thought. Uh, inclusio is not a word I use normally. I think of it in terms of a sandwich, right? You got two pieces of bread and everything in between is one sandwich, one flavor. Well, we just read a kingdom sandwich. That's how Jesus is using uh, that phrase. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then he explains a whole lot. And theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is one flavor in this passage. It's about the kingdom of heaven. Now, what I want you to see is um, this, this whole section is about the only just king giving his inaugural address in which we see the primary values of his perfectly just kingdom. And in that perfectly just kingdom, Jesus is the, he's the only perfect king in, in, in the entire history of the world. And I, I just want to show you that I'm not making this up to fit a narrative here in the text or to make it say something I'm not saying. This is actually Matthew's theme, that Jesus is the only perfect king. He is here to inaugurate a perfectly just kingdom, and here are his kingdom values. We know that each gospel writer takes a different approach or has a different focus. Matthew wants his readers to see Jesus as the only perfect and promised king. He wants us to see that his kingdom is perfectly just and the only kingdom that ever is. He wants us to understand the primary values of Jesus' kingdom and to see it for what it is, a countercultural kingdom. I mean, we see that in the opening line of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That right there is a kingly title. You might just say that Matthew's leading off with Jesus is the president-elect or the heir to the throne or whatever relevant terminology you want to throw in there. Matthew is screaming out, hey, Jesus is your rightful king and he's the promised king. And then he says, what he's saying is my entire book is going to be about one thing. I'm writing a record for you of your rightful king and his kingdom. That's what the gospel of Matthew is about. Like for my kids, if I was telling them a story and it was about one thing, I would say to them, once upon a time, when all the world was gripped in a, a, in a, in a darkness, there was a rescuing king, dot, 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 dot. Well, what's that story going to be about? A rescuing king, right? That's exactly what Matthew is doing in his opening line. He's letting us know that Jesus is the promised king, the king that was promised to David, that would come from David's line. And um, he would, and this king would be established forever. His reign would be established forever by God the Father. So when Matthew uses his title, Son of David, he's letting us know that Jesus is that promised king. He's letting us know that Jesus is the forever king, right? He's the king of whom was said, I, God said, I will establish his throne forever. So he's promised, he's the forever king, he's our rightful king. He has a right to rule over me as my creator. Jesus is our rescuing king. Matthew tells us that later in chapter 1. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He rescues us. Jesus is the good king. In chapter 2, we read, Jesus is a ruler who will shepherd my people. Shepherds are good. They care for their sheep. They protect them, feed them, provide for them. And Jesus is authentically good. He's not photo op good. Not like this or like this. In fact, in Later in chapter 1, Matthew says, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us, God to us, God with us, and God for us. This king, Matthew is saying, would be really good uh, 
in this way. He would really be with his people and for his people. See, the incarnation was not a photo op. It was a flesh and blood identification, participation, and rescue in the lives of broken people desperately in need of rescue. Continuing with the scene, Matthew lets us know in chapter 4 that Jesus went throughout all Galilee proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And that is his summary statement right there just before we encounter the Beatitudes, right? The inbreaking of Jesus' kingdom is really good news for us. That's what the word gospel means. It's good news. Now, why? Well, we look back to the prophet Isaiah. This is Isaiah 9 verse 7. And it goes like this, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, the throne that Jesus occupies, and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His kingdom is good news for sinners who have rebelled because through his kingdom work, Jesus reconciles us to the Father. We can't do it for ourselves. He does it for us. His kingdom is good news to all those of to all those who live in broken kingdoms rife with poor leadership, abuses of power and absences of peace and the presence of systemic injustice to include economic injustice or racial injustice. Jesus is everything our political leaders are not. He's not an upgrade to some other president or king. He's radically different then. And Jesus as king doesn't just offer a little more justice or a little more peace. His kingdom is perfectly just because he is the just one and Jesus will establish true and lasting peace. And so his kingdom is everything that the culture of our American kingdom or any other earthly kingdom is not. Right? We long for the inbreaking of this kingdom. So what does, he, what does Jesus mean when he says, um, blessed are those who are poor in spirit? Well, some translations say, um, happy are those who are poor in spirit. That, that's good, but it's really incomplete. Maybe happiness is a part of it, but very incomplete. Other translations say fortunate are those who are poor in spirit. That's good too, but again, incomplete. I mean, rescued rebels are fortunate, but it's not the full idea. Uh, the, the idea of being blessed in the Bible is to be approved or to find approval. I like what D.A. Carson says. He says, when man blesses God, he is approving or praising God. When God blesses man, he is approving man. So to be blessed is to be right with God through Jesus and have that spoken over you by God himself. And that is the blessing. The blessing is not stuff. The blessing is not health. The blessing is not an easy life. The blessing is Jesus himself and citizenship in his kingdom and reconciliation with the Father. But there's more to the blessing. I mean, you read, as we read through there, you could look at the second half of each statement, and there's a very tangible way in which Jesus would bless those who are citizens in his kingdom. Now, there's an important thing here we need to see. We are not told in the Sermon on the Mount, hey, live like this, and you will become a Christian. Rather, we are told this is how Christians are meant to live. This is what a kingdom citizen looks like. All right, we are meant to be poor in spirit. That's how we're created. It's not a negative thing. This is a good thing. And so the spirit brings our cold, dead rebel hearts to life. And he cultivates this, this poverty of spirit within us. And then we learn and we give ourselves to what our king values, this poverty of spirit. Now, all these qualities that we just read in this, in this portion of scripture are to characterize all of his followers 
These are his ideal for every citizen of God's kingdom. This is not a passage for elite Christians or especially gifted Christians. This is stuff that Jesus is saying will be found in the DNA of every kingdom citizen. Now, we don't earn these blessings by our performance. The Beatitudes describe blessings which God gives not as a reward for merit, but as a gift of grace. That's what John Stott says, and he's right. So we serve a rescuing king who finds joy in blessing his people. And the focus is not on material blessing. Better, Jesus gives us himself and he gives us exactly what our souls need. That's the blessing. So what is the first primary value of Jesus' counterculture kingdom? Well, we, we read it. It's to be poor in spirit. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does that mean to be poor in spirit? To be poor in spirit is the opposite of being self-fulfilled or self-satisfied. It's the acknowledgement that in and of myself, I am poor. I don't have what I need, but my father is rich and he gladly gives. So I posture myself before him in order to receive, you know, just like my kids do. I mean, I can't work from home anymore. I don't know how teleworking went for you, but when I work from home, here's what I hear. Dad, dad, hey, dad, 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 guess what? Dad, you want to play? Dad, I'm thirsty, dad, I'm hungry, dad, I'm tired, dad, I, I need, right? My kids are poor in spirit. They know they need and they know I give and they know I like to give and they know I can't work from home. So to be poor in spirit is the only authentic way to live because it acknowledges that I'm created and dependent. I am dependent. I need. And what I need is not found within myself. It's found within my creator. So to be poor in spirit is the only authentic expression of my spiritual condition before God. It acknowledges that I need rescue. It acknowledges that I have rebelled and I tend to rebel and I need grace. To be poor in spirit is to reject the ethic of Invictus. You've all heard these lines, I'm not, or I'm the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. Well, that's not what a, a person who is poor in spirit would say. We reject that ethic. To be poor in spirit is to reject the ethic of our own Western culture, the values of autonomy and independence. Well, what does that look like? It looks like acknowledging, yep, I'm created for relationship with God and with others. I repent of living on the fringe of church life and I engage in meaningful relationships for my father's fame and for the good of others. Paul Tripp says it this way. He says, independence and self-reliance are the enemies of our faith. Do you hear that? Independence and self-reliance are the enemies of our faith. Guys, our big problem is not weakness. Our big problem is our constant delusion of strength. To be poor in spirit is not to be confused with being hopeless, lifeless, sad, perpetually depressed, not having any confidence, not having the zeal for life, lacking passion, not having any gritty determination, not having the strength. No, that's not what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit simply means that I don't look to myself, to other people, to things or to circumstances for whatever my soul desires or needs. Rather, I look to Jesus. That is what it looks like. That's what it means. And Jesus says, you are blessed if you are poor in spirit. The kingdom is yours, he says. He says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The kingdom is theirs now. So what Jesus is saying is this poverty of spirit is a sign of citizenship in his kingdom. Because outside of, outside of his rescuing work in our lives, Outside of him bringing our hearts to life through the work of the Spirit and sowing the seeds of a poverty of spirit in our heart, 
that seed won't take, won't be planted and won't take root and won't grow through any effort of our own. He does that planting and it grows. And he's saying, look, you're blessed if you're poor in, your, in spirit because this is uh, the kingdom is yours. This is a sign of your citizenship. So how do I live as somebody who really is poor in spirit? Thomas Watson wrote this. He said, he who is poor in spirit is much in prayer. Now that's, I love that quote and I hate that quote because I'll just be honest with you right now. My default in life is not to live as though I am poor in spirit. Like I, I really don't do that well at all. Um, but there's hope for me and there's hope for you if you're like me. In fact, James says in his short letter, James says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, right? I need grace in my inability to live as someone who is poor in spirit, and so do you. Uh, Paul Tripp, again, he says this, grace means that you can admit and confess sin rather than excusing it or denying it. Which, which is your typical practice? I mean, I excuse and I deny. And so this week, what are you excusing or denying as it relates to being poor in spirit? Grace gives us the freedom to admit and to confess that while we intellectually would agree that we are poor in spirit in practice, we just don't live that way well at all or naturally. So let's not excuse it or deny it. Let's together admit it and confess and receive grace from our Father. And guys, this is the good news of the kingdom right here. Martin, Lord, Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way. He said, these beatitudes crush me to the ground. Um, guys, I feel the same way, and maybe some of you do as we read through this passage. Uh, what happens is they show us our utter helplessness to get into the kingdom or stay in the kingdom or be a good kingdom citizen. Um, right, that's me. So if being poor in spirit is the pathway to blessing, like Jesus says, that here's how I'm left feeling. I'm like, there's no way in this life that I will attain from God, my Father, what I need. I don't live as a poor in spirit kingdom citizen or son of my father well at all. Man, how do you feel about that? If you feel similarly to me that these beatitudes kind of crush you to the ground and they show you your utter helplessness as they do me, let me show you one more inclusio or kind of like gospel sandwich for you. It's here in Matthew. In fact, it brackets the entire Sermon on the Mount. So it starts right before the beatitudes and finishes up there. Matthew 4.23 says this, And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, listen, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics. And listen, Jesus healed them. So right before the Sermon on the Mount begins, uh, we see this picture of Jesus healing broken people, doing for them what they can't do for themselves. And here's the second half of the inclusio, or this, this sandwich, right after the Sermon on the Mount. This is Matthew 8.16. It says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, just a word, and he healed all who were sick. Guys, that's the good news of the kingdom. Jesus does for us what we can't do for ourselves. That is the good news of the kingdom. Jesus heals. Jesus gives life. And that's why Jesus was so clear about how to gain entry into his perfectly just kingdom. He didn't say to us, try harder. He didn't say to us, 
be good, be a good person. In fact, he told us in order to get into the kingdom, your righteousness, your works would have to exceed that of the religious professionals who just sit around all day memorizing the law and keeping it. In other words, you can't, I can't. He didn't say those things. You know what he said? Matthew 4, 17, Jesus said, repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Guys, that is the pathway into the kingdom. Repentance, not performance. Not my own performance. Jesus' performance on my behalf. And so I repent of my rebellion. And by his grace, he transfers me into his kingdom. Guys, our greatest problem is not unjust kings. Our greatest problems are not found in broken broken kingdoms. Our greatest problem is the injustice that is so deeply rooted in our own rebel hearts. Let me just say that again. Your greatest problem are the profound injustices that you have committed against a righteous God that are so deeply rooted in your own rebel heart. And Jesus, by his grace, roots those rebel injustices and tendencies out of our hearts. He bears the punishment in our place for our rebellion and our injustice, and he gives us his righteousness, and he gives us entrance into the kingdom by grace through faith. Guys, every rebel son and daughter finds their way into Jesus' kingdom through repentance. That's it. Repentance and faith in Jesus. Let me just ask you, have you? Is that your confidence? Have you repented and believed the good news of the gospel? You must repent and you must believe the good news of Jesus' kingdom. So through repentance and faith, we find ourselves to be citizens of a different kingdom. Jesus rescues and he transfers our citizenship from kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. And so now we have a perfect king for the first time in our lives, Jesus, our perfect king. And we belong to his perfectly just kingdom. But listen, that kingdom is only here right now in part. We see it represented in churches all around the world, but it's only here in part. So perfect justice in this world will not be known fully until Jesus returns and fully establishes his kingdom and his kingdom rule. In the meantime, in the messy in-between, we exist under the leadership of imperfect and unfortunately even unjust and sometimes even grossly unjust kings. And we live as citizens of very, very broken kingdoms characterized by, through the entire history of the world, systemic injustices. This is not unique to us um, in this generation. This has tragically always been the case as a result of our rebellion against our Father. So, as kingdom citizens, citizens of a countercultural kingdom, what do we do while we wait for Jesus to return and fully establish his kingdom and eradicate injustice and implement full-on justice and peace? What do we do? Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was clear. Pray and work pray. He said he taught his followers how to pray, and this is found in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Pray this way, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And work. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, don't be anxious about your life anymore. You seek first the kingdom of God. Seek his kingdom and his kingdom values and seek his righteousness. So what do we do while we wait? In the brokenness and in the injustice, we pray and we work. So, so family, guys, Jesus calls us to pray for the continued inbreaking of his kingdom into the brokenness of the kingdoms in which we live right now. He calls us to pray for his will to be done anywhere it is not being done 
in our broken kingdoms. We should actively pray that any and all systemic racism and systemic injustice is absolutely eradicated and that there would be justice for those who don't presently know justice. That's what he's teaching us when he teaches us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it it is in heaven. Praying is not all that Jesus calls us to. Jesus also calls us to work. He calls us, he tells us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And this is a way of life. This is a loyalty, loyalty to Jesus as our king that's expressed by living for his fame and for the good of those in our city. We do this by sharing the good news of the gospel, right? We do, we do this by telling people the good news of the kingdom and telling them about our perfectly just king. So it's not less than talking about the gospel or sharing the gospel with those who are not yet in the kingdom, but it's more than just talking. So we do this by sharing the good news of of the kingdom, but we also do this by working for the outworking of his kingdom values in our broken kingdoms. In other words, here's what we mean. Where we see injustice, Jesus calls us to work for justice. We advocate for life as his family. We advocate for mercy. These are his kingdom values. We love the orphans and we love the widows. We serve the foreigners among us. We show mercy to them. And we give ourselves to the eradication of injustices against those within any minority. Believing deeply that because we're all created in the Imago Dei that has profound implications for us, the image of God in all people. And so we give ourselves to the eradication of injustices against those with any minority group. See, guys, being poor in spirit is more than a posture toward our king. It's a posture that Jesus calls us to live toward other people as well. It's a posture of humility. It's a posture that that says, listen, I get what I need from Jesus. Like my soul is satisfied in Christ And so now I'm free to give of myself. I'm free to give myself in the same way that he gave himself for my good. I can give myself for your good. And so as a church, then we identify with those who are suffering, with anybody who's suffering, not for a photo op, but sincerely for another person's good or another people group's good. So what does that mean for a majority white American church? That would be us. That's what we are in this life stage. As we press into the season where the the right conversation about social injustice or injustices or systemic racism is being had um, as it relates to those who are in our African American community and for those who are Black Americans among us, what does that mean for us? I think it means that we listen first. We listen to understand. We pray. We pray fervently. We repent where necessary. And we ask ourselves hard questions. You see, I grew up learning to be silent on this topic. I grew up learning to defend the um, to, to defend the honor of a broken broken. Let me start that sentence over. I grew up by learning to uh, I grew up learning to defend the honor of a broken kingdom by slinging stats. That's who I was. And so we need to ask hard questions like these. Why the need to defend a broken kingdom from charges of systemic racism? Why? If the gospel tells us this has been true through the history of the world, why is it difficult for us to acknowledge that black lives matter without adding caveats to that sentence? 
Why do I listen only to win arguments rather than listening to understand and empathize? Why do I spend more time researching and sharing stats than I do listening to the stories of people, real people with souls? So Jesus calls us to listen, calls us to pray, calls us to repent. He calls us to speak up and advocate. Paul Tripp says it this way, love for your neighbor means caring deeply about things that do not touch you or affect you in any way. That kind of love is what makes Jesus' kingdom so countercultural. That kind of love is supposed to be what characterizes his church. So, even if we feel that racial injustice or systemic racism do not touch or affect us in any way, if it touches or affects our neighbors, then we choose to care deeply about it. And we give ourselves to listening, praying, repenting where necessary, and working for Jesus' fame and the good of others. Later this summer, we're going to enter into, after the Beatitudes, we'll have a sermon series on the gospel and racial justice. I want to invite you to listen with me and read as we prepare for that series. On our website, under the header of the gospel and racial justice, you'll notice a position paper shared by the Acts 29 family of churches, of which we are a part. I'd encourage you to read that. And then right below that link, you see the picture on the screen here, is a resource list, a whole bunch of resources to help us listen, learn, and respond through the filter, the lens of the gospel. Next week, I'll add a third option there. There'll be some of my own recommended resources as I do this work. Guys, Aerosmith was right. There is something wrong with our world. I mean, really wrong with our world. Many things wrong. But Jesus, our perfect king, will rescue and he will redeem. His kingdom will break in further, bringing justice to the oppressed. The question for us as kingdom citizens of this counterculture kingdom this morning is this. Will we work with him in the waiting? God help us to be found faithful working with him for his fame and the good of others. I love you, family. Thank you.